Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Grace City Church podcast. If you would like more info on our church, you can visit gracecityboston.com. Now let's get to the sermon. All right. Hey, welcome. My name is Brian. If I don't know you, I'm the lead pastor here at uh, Grace City. So thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the 1030, uh, 1030 service. And uh, we're in the uh, week four of a series that we've entitled uh, The Jesus Movement. And so really we've been looking at uh, the, the genesis of the church. How, how did the church start? We've been um, kind of uh, looking at what, what did they value? What was the ethos of their uh, community? This is, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, a really important thing for us to, uh, to come around uh, because the reality is that the further that you get um, away from something, uh, really the beginning and the formation of something, the further that you get away from that, the um, less clear it tends to become. You know what I mean? Like, uh, how many people you've ever played the telephone game, right? When you were a kid and, and you, you start at the beginning, right? And there's always the one jerk kid who changes it on purpose, right? But if you're in like a, a group of kids who actually are doing the game, right? No matter how well everyone does it, by the time it gets around to the end, you're like, mom's feet were pink, you know? And it was like something totally, you know, you drive a pink car or some crazy like thing, right? That's kind of the reality. And so what really what we've been doing um, is kind of going back and just saying, okay, we're 2,000 years or so from uh, the formation of the church, from the beginning of the church. Uh, we, If you identify as a follower of Christ, if you're someone living uh, the way of Jesus, then this church thing is really important, uh, vastly important. And so it's, it's, it's on us to kind of get to a place where we're looking at, okay, well, how did this start? And so the good news is, is that God has actually given us the Bible um, to help us see the kind of the beginning of the church. And so we've been in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts was written by Luke. Uh, Luke wrote the gospel that really highlighted and spot, uh, kind of put the spotlight um, on Jesus. And, and really the whole Bible is about Jesus. So don't hear me wrong on that. But um, he's really highlighting the, the person, the work, the life of Jesus. And then you get into the book of Acts and it's about um, the people of Jesus, his church, the, the formation and, and, and what it looks like. Uh, and so that's where we're going to be at. So if you have a Bible, go to Acts chapter 6. Uh, it's where we're going to start at this morning. Acts chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. It'll be on the screen as well. Uh, you can turn to it in, if you have a Bible or if you have, uh, if you have a virtual uh, Bible as well. I, I do want to say this on the front end. Um, so a lot of what we've been talking about is how do we be kind of a, a counter cultural people, right? Now, when I say countercultural people, like sometimes uh, if you're kind of in like the church Christian world, uh, sometimes the culture is is said as if it if it's like an evil thing, right? So it's like, beware the culture. You know, we, we just kind of have this weird thing about this is kind of what happens uh, in Christian subculture. Um, but what I, what I mean by uh, a kind of a counterculture is not, not a people who shrink back from the culture, not a people who isolate from the culture. Uh, we, we, we most certainly don't want to be a people who uh, are just in church. We're just in small group. We're just in prayer meetings. We're just uh, in, in, in those kind of environments, this is kind of, we kind of huddle up, you know, we all run to our dorms or apartments after the service and we all kind of get together and start reading our Bible again, right? That would be weird. Well, that'd be weird. I mean, not weird. If that's you, let's talk later. You're very spiritual. Um, but we're people, listen, here's the thing. We're a people who, we're not isolated from the culture, but we're living in the culture with vastly different values, and so we're pressing into the culture. And in a lot of ways, we're creating culture while at the same time viewing 
culture, not as um, n- not as the the goal, right? But but we're we're in it and we're involved in it and we're we're people. This is this is what we want to be. We want to be people in and involved. And so this morning we're, we're looking at the, so the next two Sundays. So this morning and next Sunday will actually uh, be a little bit different than what we've looked at. We're kind of more kind of focusing in on two individuals. And, and I think that it really encapsulate this idea uh, of being a counterculture kind of person while at the same time um, not valuing the values of the culture while at the same time living and operating in such a way. Okay. So Acts chapter six, you're like, please get to it. Okay. Acts chapter six, starting in verse one. Uh, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll dive into this uh, particular part. God, we, um, we're so grateful that you give us your word, um, that you, you've not asked us to fill around in the dark and figure out what you're like. Um, you've not asked us as a church to uh, come up with a, a vision of how we're to live. God, you, you've given us all of these things in your scripture. And so would you help us this morning, God? We, we just ask the Holy Spirit uh, we just ask the Holy Spirit's help. God, we, we naturally want to fight against the things of Jesus, the, the way of Jesus. All, all of us, um, we, we want to fight against these things that you're calling us to, to die to and to, to form around. There's just, there's just so many things that are, are hard for us as a people, God. And so would you help us today um, through your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would you illuminate uh, places in our minds and our hearts where we seek to walk in darkness, God. And so we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. So we're looking at a guy named Stephen this morning. This is Acts chapter six, uh, one through five. This is what Luke records for us. It says this, um, in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Okay, so here's what's happening. Um, and, and I so appreciate this, but uh, the, the early church was a complex thing. Not like now. <laughs> the early church was a complex thing that, that was composed of people from all kinds of different uh, kind of uh, ethnic backgrounds. Like as the way of Jesus was going, what you were finding is you were finding a, um, a, a plethora, a, a multiple just kind of groupings of different people with all kinds of different backgrounds. And, and, and it was super complex and really, really difficult and, 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 and hard. And, and so, what, you know, sometimes we read the Bible and we think, man, these people are superhumans or they're super Christians or, you know, they're, they're really close to Jesus. And so they're getting all this stuff right. And, and I'm not so close to Jesus. And they kind of knew people that knew Jesus if they didn't know Jesus. And well, we all know Jesus, you know what I mean? But like knew Jesus, like saw him. And so sometimes we, we kind of place them on a, a, on a pedestal. But the reality is, is that the early church was plagued with problems because it's composed of people. Right? I mean, think about this. Um, the majority of Paul's New Testament letters, um, you know, he, he wrote Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd uh, Thessalonians, right? Titus, Timothy, um, all these, the, the 1st and 2nd Corinthians, I mean, all these, Galatians, all, all of these letters that he wrote, he wrote primarily because things were jacked up in the churches. And that's comforting to me, personally. And, and so they're just people with problems. And so what happens is you, you, have, um, the, you have a group of Hellenistic Jews who are saying, hey, um, we're being overlooked. So these are Greek-speaking Jews, primarily Greek-speaking Jews. And the, the widows are saying, hey, we're being overlooked. We're not getting, being taken care of. It was an, an oversight. 
uh, not on purpose, but, but this is kind of what was happening. Okay, so now, so the 12, it says, uh, Luke says, the 12 summoned the whole company. Um, this is back in Acts chapter six. It says, the 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Uh, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, uh, full of the spirit and wisdom who we can appoint to this duty. Okay, so full of the spirit and of wisdom. These are the brothers that we're looking for but we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It says, uh, verse five, it says, this proposal uh, pleased the whole company. So they chose, here's our, our, the guy we're looking at. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy, um, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I've actually been thinking about that a lot. Um, Luke actually says the same thing about Barnabas in Acts chapter 11. He says that Barnabas was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And, and I hear that and I'm like, that, that's what I want. Uh, I want to be a, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Like if there's something described about me, that's what I want. I, I, I want to run with men and women who are full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. That that is the description about them. Like we could use a lot of different descriptions for a lot of different people, but I, I primarily like wanna be uh, about the business of being with people who you describe as full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. I wanna be a church in a city where we're primarily described as a people full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. This is what I want. Not a contentious people. No, we're not perfect. Gosh, man, if you get close enough, we'll jack you up. You know what I mean? We will. Not perfect people, but, but a people full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. This is what, um, this is what they are, uh, this is what they're describing in this moment. And, and so the, the Jewish leaders, they, they, they pick Stephen for the task to take care of, um, of them. And so as you can imagine, Stephen's ministry is now growing. If this is a description of who he is, it's growing. Uh, Luke actually tells us in chapter six, Luke writes this about Stephen. Um, he says, now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Okay, so now he's a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and now he's a man performing great wonders and signs among the people. Incredible. So, so the favor of God is what? It's on Stephen. It's on him. This is important. I want you to hear this. The favor of God is on Stephen. It's on him. He, he's leading the early church. Um, he's performing these great wonders and signs. And so we get to Acts chapter 7. And there's uh, an accusation brought against Stephen from the religious leaders of the day. Now, if you know anything about the religious leaders in the early church, they were wonderful, the religious elite. And, and so they come against um, Stephen, and this is what they say. This is the accusation. They say, Stephen, you are speaking against the temple and the law. Now, if you're a Jewish uh, individual, uh, to be charged as speaking against the temple and the law is a major problem. That's a problem. You, you, this is not a charge that you want to be brought against, but they're, they're seeking to kind of stir up problems and, and issues against Stephen. 
And, and this is a lot of kind of what, what we're talking about today is we're, we're essentially talking about as we follow the way of Jesus, there is a type of tension that we cannot get away from. That honestly, if you're following the way of Jesus in the city, let's talk about Boston, New England, right? This is the context that we're in. If you're following the way of Jesus in Boston and greater Boston, wherever you find yourself, and you are not experiencing a type of um, tension in your life, a type of conflict, a type of difficulty in your life, you're probably not doing it the right way. Probably not doing it the right way. And so this is, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing Stephen as a man who um, is blessed by God. And so Stephen, this is what Stephen does. So Stephen, in response to the accusation, gives the longest sermon in the New Testament. Look, this is, this is what he does. Uh, he gives the longest sermon. It's complex. It's theologically rich. It's robust. It is like you're just trying to get your mind around it. If you're in Acts chapter 7, it is, it is hard to get your mind around. So let's read it together. I'm just kidding. We're not going to read it together. All right, let me summarize. Let me summarize for you. This is essentially what he does because he's been charged against the temple um, and, the, and the law. So let me kind of give this to you. The, the best way that I can. Um, this is what he says. He says, we no longer need the temple in order to meet with God. He's like, to be present with God, um, we, we actually don't need the temple to find God anymore. Th this is what he's saying to them uh, about, about the temple. Now, if you're in the crowd, you're, you're, you're a Jewish listener in the crowd, and you hear, we don't need the temple to meet with God anymore, you, now you have a problem, right? Because... Um, the, the temple is, is where we bring sacrifices and we bring sacrifices so that we can be purified, that we can be made right. And the reason that we do that is because of the law. The law says to come to the temple with a sacrifice, so we do it. But now, Stephen, you're saying that we don't need the temple, but the law says we do. So then, now Stephen goes at the law. Now, Stephen, this is what he says about the law. He says the law is great. I'm for the law. Like the law is supposed to bring human flourishing. So if you follow this way of living, you will flourish as an individual. This is why God gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, the Torah, right? You've seen the movie. This is why he gave it to him. But this is what Stephen says. Stephen says, the law is good and right. And yes, the law brings righteousness, but you can't keep the law. I can't keep the law. He says, we can't keep the law. We, we can't do it. This is what Stevens gets at in, in his sermon. He, he's like, you didn't obey the law with Moses. You didn't obey the law with Aaron. And the prophets all throughout the Bible have told us you cannot keep the law. You, you, you can't. And, and, and so what he's saying is he's saying, you don't need the temple to find and meet with God. And yes, we love the law, but we can't keep the law. So what do we do? Because if salvation, hear this, if salvation comes through the law, but we can't properly keep the law, now what do we do? What do we do? If we don't need the temple to meet with God, then, then, then what do we do? Look what he says, Acts chapter 7, 51 and 53, verses 51 and 53. This is how he... Um, this is how he ends this particular sermon. So if you want to flex on your friends later and let them know that you know Acts chapter 7, Stephen's sermon. All right, here we go. 51, he says this. 
He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Right? That, is a, that is a spiritual burn, you know, like a diss. He says, you uncircumcised hearts and ears. He, he says, you, you, those who are, have spiritually hard hearts and spiritually hard ears, those who refuse to hear from God, refuse to hear from Him, refuse to live in, in uh, obedience to Him. He says, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. He says, which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? He actually says that he kind of ends his sermon by saying, oh, and by the way, not only do we not need the temple to meet with God, not only can we not keep the law, but he says, every single deliverer that God sent to you, you killed them. You persecuted them. And they were there for your good. He says, which of your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those. Listen, he says, they even killed those who foretold, uh, foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you've now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. Now, what's Stephen doing here? This is interesting. Notice what he, uh, in verse 52, notice what he calls Jesus. He calls Jesus what? The righteous one. He uses that on purpose. Now, now, why does he do that? Because that's not something that Jesus, if you're studying the scriptures, it's not something that Jesus is called a lot, the righteous one. But he, he's with intention using that. Now, what makes someone righteous? In, in their time, what would make someone righteous is what? Someone who perfectly kept the law. This is how you were righteous before God. You kept the law perfectly. And so Stephen is doing what? He's pointing to Jesus. He, he's saying, G, this guy named Jesus, he, he actually perfectly kept the law. He, he actually was in obedience to the law. Like he, he was the righteous one. And, and you, you killed him. Like you came against him. He, he's actually using, I love this, he's using the accusations that they bring against him to turn the spotlight on Jesus. He's now, Jesus, uh, Stephen's in a moment of tension and difficulty and conflict, and there is an accusation against him because of his faith. Because of his faith, Stephen finds himself in this moment, and he uses this moment to do what? To highlight the righteousness of Jesus, the, the perfect obedience of the Son. This is what he does in, in this moment. So he says that, that Jesus is why the temple and the law are no longer necessary. Like if you want to meet with God, which is what the temple was for, you have unlimited access through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to the Father. You don't need the temple. You don't have to come to the temple. You have access through Jesus. If you want to, to, to be righteous... Like if you want to be clean, like that, that's important. You want to be clean before God and, and the law is what's necessary and, and we can't keep the law. You don't have to worry about it because why? Because Jesus perfectly kept the law. And, and the scripture tells us that, that he ultimately became the temple sacrifice, the, the once and for all sacrifice. So he says, this is what Jesus, he says, Jesus earned the blessing of eternal life. Jesus earned the blessing of obedience. And then he did what? Then he went to the cross. This is, what, this is what Stephen's highlight. He was rejected. He was betrayed. He was denied. He suffered. He died. He ultimately, this is what Stephen, he ultimately took, in his perfect obedience, he ultimately took the penalty that was deserved to people towards us. So Stephen says, man, this is 
This is Jesus. He's saying he's, he's changed everything. This was the message of the early church, that Jesus has changed everything. The way we relate to God, he's changed it. The way we approach God, he's changed it. The way we relate to one another, he's changed it. That's what's happening. Uh, ultimately, here's what Stephen had decided and the church at large had decided. They had decided that the life and the message of Jesus was, was so transformative that it, it had decisively changed how they viewed the world and how they had decided to operate inside of the world. It was so transformative that it changed both how they were looking at the world around them and both how they would operate in the world. It changed them. Now, here's the reality of the story. Here's what we're about to get into. Um, this posture would cost them. It would cost them dearly. There, there would be a tremendous amount of sacrifices that the early church would have to go through as a result of this. The message of Jesus in the early church, and I would say even now, but most certainly in the first century, um, in the first century was disruptive, was unbelievably disruptive. All right, let's look. Um, Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Let's see how far the early church, really exemplified by Stephen, are willing to take this message. Acts 7, verse 54. Here's the, here's the thing, because uh, I, I do want to say this, because uh, I think it's important. When Stephen is giving this sermon, um, we're, we're about to see, like, he's actually giving this in a hostile environment. Like, he, he's, he's, like, so it's not like, Steve, you know, Stephen didn't get up and give a sermon. It was like, you know, there was some worship music before, and then Stephen got up and was like, hey, go through your bulletin, you know, blah, blah, blah. you know, get all the things. No, no, it was like a host, like, hostile environment that Stephen's in. They, they, they hate this man and the message that he's given. Look what happens. Verse 54, it says, when they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. I don't know what that means, but it does not sound good. Stephen, this is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, which you got to know, you got to know our boy is going to be full of the Holy Spirit in this moment. He's unwavering. It says, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices. They covered their ears. It's like a kid. They covered their ears and together they rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, uh, a stoning was a, was a hard, like, was labor intensive. The reason that they're uh, taking off their garments, they're laying their garments down. This is not some kind of, uh, this is not some kind of moment of, of honoring this guy named Saul. It was like, no, we're about to get hot and sweaty. We're going we're gonna to kill this man. And it says that they, they dragged him out of the sea. They, the reason, hear this, the reason they dragged him out of the city was this is an unlawful, unjust execution. These people weren't barbaric. They knew to leave the city for what they were about to do. They got out of the city's borders. So it says they took off their clothes, laid them down at this young man named Saul. And it says, while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
And after saying this, he fell asleep. Now, this is heavy, but it's important. It's a heavy morning, but it's an important morning. This is a, the first documented um, fatal uh, persecution of the church. Stephen was the first martyr of the early church. This is, this is what Luke is, is showing us. And, and, and I see this story and, and I think, man, um, how in the world am I going to mimic this guy's life? Like, I, I want to be someone full of the, of the Spirit, full of the Spirit and full of faith. Like, like I want to do that, but how, like, how am I going to do this? I mean, uh, listen, I love the power. I love great power. I, like, I love that, those parts of it, right? But the end of Stephen's life is problematic for me. It is. It, it's a, I'm studying it, and it's a, it's a problem. It's a problem. No one wants this ending. Do we? Do, do, do any of us want to walk in faith, walk in obedience, and, and experience this type of ending? No. I mean, we actually, we actually put up walls that keep this, like keep this from coming at us, don't we? Like we, we put up, um, uh, you know, we put up walls of like, of, um, of cultural relevancy, of affluence, of like, you know, of cultural prestige. You know, it's almost like, it's like, I'm a Christian, but I'm an okay Christian. You know what I mean? Like, I, like yes, I believe in the way of Jesus, yeah, 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 but I'm still culturally relevant. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to make things uncomfortable for you. Right? Cause, cause, why? It's like, I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk to, talk to you about Jesus, even though it's the most transformative, life-changing, best news on the face of the world, but I'm not going to mention it to you. Now, if you ask me, we're game. Why? Because, because we don't, we don't want this ending. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem we say, I don't want Stephen's ending. Is who does Stephen look like in this moment? Jesus. I mean, look, look, at the, look at how Luke tells us, right? He, Stephen boldly proclaims the gospel. He boldly proclaims the, the kingdom of God, doesn't he? In the, face, in the face of opposition, boldly proclaims the kingdom of God. This is truth. He does it. He does it. He, he's what? He's falsely accused and punished like a criminal. He is an unjust death outside of the city walls. Unjust. Same as Jesus. Uh, third thing, he's doing what? He's interceding for his murderers in the middle of his execution. He's in the middle of his execution telling the Father to not hold their sins against them. See, a refusal to embrace the story of Stephen is a refusal to embrace the way of Jesus. It is. See, Stephen fully and completely embraced the way of Jesus all the way to his death. Now, now the first century church actually was wild is they actually embrace this type of life. When you're reading the, when you're reading the story, like they, they kind of quickly learned that this message was going to create problems for them. This just became more and more uh, apparent to them that this is what was going to happen over and over and over again. Uh, an early church leader, his name is Paul, in 2 Corinthians uh, 4. So if you have a Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, 7 through 15. We're going to look at this because Paul is going to speak directly towards uh, this idea of conflict um, in, in bringing the way of Jesus forward and, and how, we're to, how we're to do this well. 
2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7 through 15, this is what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He said this, Now we have this treasure in clay jars, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may be also displayed in our mortal flesh. So then, death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, keeping with what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that as the grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Now, this text is beautiful. So he says, we have this treasure. Now, the treasure is what? It's the, it's the message of Jesus. It's the gospel. That God is reconciling a people through his son, Jesus. This is the message. This is the treasure. And he says, we have this treasure in what? In a treasure chest. No, right? In a crypto wallet. No, no, no. He says, it's in a clay pot. Like simple, ordinary, basic clay pot. Unextraordinary clay pot. Now, what's he doing here? Paul is saying that God has given this message and this message goes to the world through who? Through a fragile people, through our ordinary people. This We're clay pots. This is what he's saying, this treasure. This, this is what he's speaking towards, that we're people who are limited and frail and at times um, weak. But, but he, he says that God actually shows the power of the gospel by communicating and bringing the gospel through a weak and frail people. This actually shows the power of God, what, what he can do. I mean, if we were all superhuman, super religious, all put together, all affluent, um, all just really, you know, uh, I don't say organized. I don't even know what that means, but you know what I mean? Like if, if, if we were just all had our stuff together and just really wonderful, I don't know, the power of God maybe wouldn't be so strong among us. Wouldn't be so apparent that he's a powerful God. But when he takes a broken people, a frail people, a people who stumble, and, and we're the means by which people hear this message, it, it ultimately shows the power of God. This, this is what Paul actually says in this, um, in this 2 Corinthians, this passage. He, he actually says that he, he's facing all of these trials that he's facing. And Paul was under a tremendous amount of pressure. And, and he says that these, these, these trials that I'm facing, they're not a denial of the gospel. So when bad things, hear this. Paul says, when bad things are, are coming at me, and he gives a list of things where he's, he's like, I'm shipwrecked. I've been without clothes. I've been hungry. I've, you know, I've been beaten. Um, I, I've been beaten uh, five times, thirty-nine lashes. I've been imprisoned and flogged with. I mean, he's like, I've been stoned. Uh, all of these things. He says, all the, he says, all, all of these things. I, I'm not experiencing these things because God doesn't love me. I, I'm not experiencing these things because God is displeased with me. Paul is actually saying the reason that I'm experiencing the things that I'm experiencing on your behalf, right? He's writing to the church. 
He's saying the reason I'm experiencing the things that I'm experiencing, they're not saying the gospel is not true. I'm actually experiencing these things because of the gospel. The difficulty that I'm experiencing is actually evidence that I'm faithfully living the way of Jesus in my life. I'm, I'm in these things because I'm proclaiming the way of Jesus. I, he's like, I've made a choice. I've, I've made a choice. That is his commitment that is doing these things. He has such a strong belief, Paul does, in, in the power of the gospel, that, that its ability to withstand opposition, trials, and difficulties that he can say with confidence, with confidence, that he's afflicted, not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. You see, when you realize, what you become to realize is that when you treasure Jesus above all things, you can withstand way more than you ever anticipated. When he becomes your treasure, when you see him as most beautiful, your ability to withstand is way stronger and way higher than you ever anticipated. You can do it. Here's one of the things that I've found to, um, one of the things I've found to be true uh, about our sufferings and difficulties. I'm, I'm speaking towards, there's sufferings in general, right? We can have that conversation, but I just want to speak a little bit because uh, we're talking about the formation of the church and some of this is transferable. Maybe some of it's not, but uh, I want to speak in, in terms of like the difficulty that we experience because we're living the way of Jesus. Am I making sense? Like I, w- I want to be very kind of clear on this as we're, we're, we're getting into it, that it's like you're experiencing a type of difficulty and suffering and trials because you're living the way of Jesus. Okay, we're good. Here, here's kind of three kind of three things I think. Here's the first thing that I've seen. Um, it's, it's actually our sufferings have a tendency to do what? They actually amplify our message. They actually amplify the, the message when the, the suffering um, happens, right? So, so think, about, think about how powerful of a message it is, the, the gospel, the way of Jesus, uh, how powerful a message is d- despite the awkward looks, despite the social criticism, d- despite the cultural irrelevancy, right? That, that when we hold to that, Think about how powerful of a message that becomes, right? I know that there's a certain, like when I communicate to my neighbors that I'm a Christian or when I communicate to them that I'm a pastor, that goes like next level awkward. But I know when I tell them I'm a Christian, that in a lot, there's probably all kinds of things that in that moment come to their mind. And and there can be a tendency, can I be honest with you in a second? There can be a tendency where I'm like, I'm a Christian, uh, there, there can be a tendency in that moment when, when, I, when that comes out of my mouth where I'm like, oh, oh, but I'm a cool Christian. You know, you know what I mean? I, I, I didn't vote for so-and-so. Do you know what I mean? Like there, there can be this moment where because I have a desire to um, not, not experience a type of like uncomfortableness in that moment to like, yes, yes, I'm a Christian, but... Uh, uh, but not like when you're thinking. I'm, uh, this moment. But, but think about how powerful of a message it becomes when, 
when through the kind of social awkwardness, the cultural irrelevancy, you know, we say, yeah, no, no, I believe in a Christ crucified. I believe in a Christ exalted. I, I believe that the kingdom of God is the most incredible, beautiful, relevant, life-shaping thing on the face of the earth. That's who I am. How powerful of a message does that become? When we're no longer seeking to, um, we're no longer seeking to uh, protect. I mean, I mean, think about how. Okay, so this movement started moving quickly, right? The, the church started growing pretty fastly. I mean, listen to what they were doing. They're caring for one another. They're caring for the poor and the marginalized. They're breaking social barriers. They're practicing radical generosity. They're elevating women. Uh, they're going, uh, they're elevating those who are racially marginalized. And, and on top of all of that, on top of all of that, you now have this moment where in their death, they're not breathing, uh, breathing threats against their opponents, but they're using their position before the Father to appeal to him to forgive their murderers. Is it any wonder why the message spread so fastly? It was moving so quickly? This, this is what they were doing. It's actually when you press on the church the most when she's at her finest. Did she? Like, like when, the, when the pressure comes, historically the church has been at its finest. When, when the hardship comes, it, it tends to amplify our message. If anything, if anything, when the church out of a desire to protect, out of a desire to protect, gets mixed up in cultural influence, in politics, in power, in affluence, it does what? It loses its potency. Does it not? It, it loses its power. It, it becomes diluted. It gets distracted. When the church seeks to protect itself. It gets distracted. It loses its power. So the, the, the suffering that you and I experience in the city of Boston, and listen, if you are living the way of Jesus in the city of Boston, you will experience a type of tension. Now you can hide, you know, if you want, you can kind of, you know, what's so funny. Um, there are so many, and I, I find this in conversations with people. Um, there are so many like secret Christians here. You know what I mean? Where you're talking with someone, you're like, oh yeah, no, I'm a Christian. Oh, for real? I've been like hiding my Bible in my desk. I had no idea. <laughs> you know, there's like, oh, you're in sight. There's like, there's like a group of secret Christians around here. So there's a type of, why? Because there's a type of tension that we have to embrace. Okay, so it tends to amplify. Here's the second thing that our sufferings, our, our sufferings tend to force us to push into God. It tends to force us to, um, to push into God. Uh, look, look what Paul says at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, 16 and 18. And we're, we'll, we'll finish up. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18, it says this, Therefore we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light of uh, affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So what is Paul saying here? He's, so anytime you see therefore um, in the Bible, you always ask, what is it there for, right? And it's therefore, he's saying, okay, we do not give up because we have a message, the message of Jesus, 
that's been given to us as a people in ordinary clay pots that is accessible to everyone. And this message is true, right, and beautiful. So don't give up. That's what he says. He says that's what he says, therefore, um, don't give up. He says, I, I know the difficulty that you're experiencing is, is hard, but it's not wasted. It's not wasted. He's saying, lean, lean into, right? It's producing something in you. There's something lasting that is going on. I mean, look, he says the outer person is being destroyed, but the inner person is receiving new strength from God every single day. Every single day. New strength. Our circumstances tell us to give up, to stop, to find something else to chase, to find something else to love. And Paul just says, listen, don't get mixed up in what you can see. Don't get mixed up in what you can see. Here's, a, here's kind of his final thought, right? Our sufferings have a tendency, that the trials that we experience, they have a tendency of, of bringing a sense of clarity that wasn't there before. If you talk to anyone who's experienced um, difficulty as a result of their faith, trials as a result of their faith, and you've talked with them and, and they've, They've processed that in a healthy way and they've, um, they've leaned into God in those moments. You know what it's done? It's provided a sense of clarity for them that they otherwise would not have had. And so Paul says, do not, do not give up on the unseen as a result of the seen. Don't. There, there's a whole unseen out there. I know this feels difficult. I know that this seems like you hate the glances. You, you, the, the, you love the relationship that you're in. You love all of these kind of things. This is the scene. God's calling you in a different direction. He says, so don't give up the unseen for the scene. Don't do it. Don't do it. Help us see. St. Augustine um, I love St. Augustine. He was an early church father. And, and he talks a lot about disordered loves. If you've read any of his, his, his writings, he talks a lot about disordered loves. And, and this is what St. Augustine says. Um, he says that all of life is a reordering of our loves. That this is what we do. So all people have loves and they're all in certain orders. And so St. Augustine said that that our work as people following the way of Jesus is continually assessing our disordered loves. Because here's the reality, all of us have disordered loves, don't we? We all do. We put, all of us are in moments of our life putting things before Jesus, putting things before the kingdom of God. If that's what we're to love the most, all of us have disordered loves. And so St. Augustine says, all of our life should be looking at our, our, the order of our loves and then moving them to the proper order, right? Here. Here, here, moving them around. Okay, this relationship is too important. This guy or this girl is too, in. I've put them in too important a place. This vocation, this, this major, this um, financial stability, this, uh, this, stat, this kind of um, status with my social circle, this reputation with my, like, oh, it's too important. I need to move my loves around. Move the kingdom of God to, to the front end, the love of God love of Jesus. Here's what's reality. Because I've been thinking about this reordering of love. Do you know what highlights disordered loves more than anything? Suffering. Difficulty. It has a way of revealing to you what you love most. 
That's what it does. And so we embrace this because it provides a type of clarity. Look at the end of Stephen's story, and I'll pray. Acts 7, 55. Um, so beautiful. It, it says this. Because Stephen, man, his story gets even more clear. He sees even more clear at the end. Acts 7, 55, it says this. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, here is what is true. Here's why I believe is the truth. That God's people, in the midst of their suffering and difficulty and trials, God is not far from you. He's not far from you. He's not. I read these biographies about these incredible people that are experiencing a tremendous amount of, of difficulty, right? Like, pack the bags, go home difficulty. Go back to whatever's a comfortable difficulty. Do you know what I mean? But they stay, they're in it. And I believe, I believe it's because God's close to them. He's, he's present with them. And so the story, look how the story ends. It says that Jesus is, is standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, here's what, you, here's what we miss. So a throne room in their day and time was also uh, a courtroom. So if you were being tried, you did not go into a courtroom. Hear this, this is beautiful. So if someone brings an accusation against you, you come into the, the throne room because it's now the courtroom. And so this is the, the situation that we have. So sometimes maybe you've read this story before and this is what you think. Um, it could be true, I don't know. But maybe you think Jesus is standing up. It says Jesus is standing before. And maybe you think Jesus is like, uh, like Stephen's hype man in this moment. And he's like, Yes, Stephen. Yes, I'm with you. Yes, this. Yes, right. He's like angels. Get in. Get in on this with me. Like, let's cheer our boy on. Let's cheer him on. Let's let's do that. This is what Jesus was doing. Do you do you know what I think was happening in that moment? Based on this idea of courtroom, I believe Jesus in this moment is standing before God the Father and imploring before God the Father, mediating before God the Father. And he's saying, that one is mine. That one is mine. He's mine. Father, he is mine. Like, I am the righteous one. I am the one who perfectly kept the law. I am the one who received the punishment, this one, Stephen, this one is mine. And Stephen, at the end of his earthly life, sees Jesus imploring on his behalf before God the Father. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is the God that we serve. This is the kingdom that we live in. This is it. This is it. You see, Stephen's not the hero of the story. Jesus is. Stephen's just following. Just living in the way.